Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 18 with Pastor John King. The letter of Paul to the second, the second letter, excuse me, to the second Thessalonians. Right. Good morning, everybody. I had one sip of coffee. I probably needed more than in any event, we are ready to go. So while you're turning to that, um, we got a lot going on today. While it's on my mind, oh, there we go. This could be trouble. Uh, it's Super Bowl Sunday. But I want to remind you guys that there are a lot of Christian football players in the NFL who are seeking to glorify God today. And so despite, the, you know, whatever happens on the commercial side of things, uh, be in prayer for these guys, these, uh, these, you know, not only the athletes, but the trainers, the staffs, and the coaches. Because they love the Lord, and they will serve. And, and I think, uh, the, I believe both quarterbacks are Christians, so I, I don't know, we can't, we have to root for both, I guess. But anyway, uh, as we begin our final look at Paul's second letter, to the church of the Thessalonians. There, I got it right. I'd like to present just a quick overview, if I may, of what we've learned. In chapter 1, Paul sought to bring comfort and encouragement to those who were under persecution for their faith. Paul declared that they were bound to thank God always for them. In other words, they had a moral um, obligation to give thanks to the Lord because of how Despite the mounting pressure from the society, their growing love towards one another was worthy of bragging about to the other churches. You wonder if people brag about us in that sense, to being a loving, kind church, or do we say the same about other fellowships? And that they would be kind of worthy of God's calling. How? By glorifying the name of Jesus in their faith. That's the thing, you know, one of the main messages here. And it was evidence of God's righteous judgment on the wicked. And in the future, the Lord has promised that he will have vengeance on those who trouble them. But he comforted them with the promise of God's rest. And that they were always being prayed for. And that is a comfort for all of us. When we know that we're being prayed for and loved, and it's, it, it really helps a lot. And I'm serious. Uh, and only those who have been on the receiving end would know what I'm talking about. Chapter 2, the apostle brought correction and instruction for those exposed to eschatological error. You know, they were trying to tell them that they, hey, you guys missed the rapture. It's already happened. Guess what? You're living in the tribulation. What a, what a sick joke. What a, what a nightmare that would be. And he admonished them not to buy in to the false teaching. And this is for us. Not to buy into the false teaching that every church age persecution is a present sign that we are currently in the day of the Lord. They were being led to believe that they missed the rapture and they're now living in the tribulation. But he explained, and this is how you can explain it if anybody ever tries to tell you that, that if that, that had been the case, if that was true, then this... Um, great falling away. A, a worldwide apostasy would have had to pave the way for the revealing of the man of sin, the son of perdition, also known as the Antichrist. And he reminded them that he had already taught them these things concerning the day of the Lord. I mean, he had already gone through it all. And until God's timing allows for it to begin, there remains a restraining power at work preventing this lawless one from being revealed. He acknowledged that there was a precursor, he called it the mystery of lawlessness, that was already at work. And we talked about how, you know, we see things that are just crazy that go on and we can't explain it. And we know in our own hearts the things we struggle with. But he reminded them that if they were in the tribulation, then the working of Satan would be manifest through the Antichrist with all power, signs, and wonders bringing deception on a grand scale. Now we think, because we live in our culture of mass media, that we're under this grand scale of deception. Well, to some degree. But keep in mind that the church is still growing at a rapid pace around the earth. 
You know, sometimes we get in this thing about this little bubble, like the church is just us in America. And so what we're talking about happening is a worldwide deception. And then he exhorted them to stand fast in their faith and in the truth of God's word, in God's sovereignty and the purpose of their salvation. And that's our call every day of the week. Chapter 3, Paul begins his concluding words of this letter with a humble prayer request. In this, he asks that the progress of the gospel would move swiftly or move forward and also for God's protection along the way. Paul then challenges the Thessalonians to continue trusting God and to strengthen the unity that they have. This is one of Paul's favorite churches, if you, as you can tell. Now today we're going to look at Paul's final three commands for the church as he returns to a pretty uh, difficult subject. You know, this is not one of the favorite subjects that pastors like to preach on today. If you recall in the first letter... He was talking uh, about those who are considered to be unruly or those who walk disorderly. And in doing so, they expect others to support them financially. These are believers. First uh, Thessalonians 5.14, it said this. He says, now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. You know, kind of a broad thing. But today he's going to hone in on that, those who are unruly. And you and I will, will receive some practical application on a very delicate subject. Amen? <laughs> okay, Lord, we thank you for our time today. We ask, Lord, that you simply go before us as you always do when we put our trust in you. May the words that are spoken from this pulpit be from you and not from me. Lord, may you be glorified. May you speak to our hearts and minds as only you can. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. So we start with verses 6 through 10. We're going to kind of go through it a little step by step. The command to the church, and that is to stay away from every brother or sister who leads an unruly life. Verse 6, he says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Of course, here we are. Uh, he says we command. That, that word is uh, to give a charge. Um, this is the first of the final three commands of the letter, as I said. Now, uh, he kind of set the stage for this, because in verse 4 of last week, if you were taking notes, Paul expressed confidence in the work was, God was doing in them in order to respond to the apostles' leadership. He had confidence that the Lord would cause them to do that, that they would see that this was from the Lord. And he said, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. And now we see his, uh, this, the charge to the young church. Now, first of all, we've got to ask ourselves the question, is this Paul's authority? And quickly, we should answer no. We should understand that he is coming to them under the authority of the Lord. And this also indicates the, the seriousness of the charge that he's going to talk about today. He says, I command you, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you say that, when you use the name of the Lord, remember, it's a, it's a sin to use the name of the Lord in vain, by the way. We know that. But when you use the name of the Lord, what you're talking about, what it implies is all of the authority, all of the character, all of the rank, all of the majesty, all the power, all the excellence, 
Everything that the name of Jesus Christ covers. It's all summed up in that name. And it's by which God makes himself known to you and I through Jesus Christ. It is therefore equivalent to his divinity, his divine nature. So it's a no small thing for Paul to say, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the essence of the command? What's he, what's he about to say? Well, you see it here, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. Now, what we're going to be talking about today is uh, a form of church discipline. It's a form of church discipline and it's necessary, church discipline is necessary, not something we, we like to do, but it's necessary for the health, the life, and the witness of the body of Christ. And so he says, you withdraw. Now to withdraw, he's using a nautical term. It really refers to the furling or the raising of the sails of an ancient ship, meaning to withdraw or shrink from that person or thing. To stay away, to keep away. But notice he says, from every brother. So now we're not talking about some sheep in wolf's clothing. We're not talking about a false teacher. We're not talking about somebody that's come with a demonic you know, game plan. An unbeliever. We're talking about Christian, a brother or a sister in the Lord. And he says, pull away from everyone who walks. And what that means is the conduct the course of your life, what you're known for, the things that you do on a regular basis that people can point to and say, yes, in this case, that person could be working and they're not. He says, every brother who walks disorderly. Now to be disorderly is to meaning to be out of rank. It, it means to be irregular. Um, who are the disorderly? I mean, who are we talking about? What Paul is talking about the disorderly is a man or a woman who is idle, who is lazy or slothful, and not a term we would use often, but they refuse to work, or if they do work, they're very slack in their work. They may have found a way to live off the government, social services, family members, neighbors, or churches, and they take advantage of the charity of others. And we're going to see as this unfolds the harm that it does to the body of Christ. Now look, we, it's election season, okay? Do I need to remind you? Yeah. And we can easily find ourselves in long debates or arguments about the care for those who receive assistance from others. And this is because, I believe, that the lines have be, been blurred you know, that mystery of lawlessness that has been creeping into the, into the world and into society for so long. The lines have been blurred between two things. Legitimate social needs and undeserved entitlement. I mean, it's, it's what you see. And that's why it, it so drives the politics from our local level all the way up to the President of the United States. Yet the Bible is very clear, and this is for us Christians, okay? This is for you and I, because this is, this is your commands not only to the church, but us as well. The Bible is very clear that the needs of the poor are not to be overlooked. Both the Old and the New Testament reveal God's desire to show compassion to the poor and needy. From Moses to Jeremiah, we see that the kindness and generosity are a reflection of who? Uh, us and our love for God. Proverbs 14.31 says, He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. In the New Testament, the epistle of John, first epistle, also summarizes our expected charity, by the way. 1 John 3, 17 and 18 says, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So what the apostle is dealing with in the context of the time it was written is people who have perhaps made the unwise decision to either give up everything they had, just give it all away, or stop working altogether. 
Why would they do that? Remember, we said the false teaching had come upon them. They were under intense persecution. They had a misunderstanding about the end times. And so some of them said, I, you know, I'm just going to get rid of everything. I'm going to stop working because Jesus is coming tomorrow. You know, if you knew, if you knew the date when the Lord was coming back, I don't know, you'd be tempted not to go to work. But then again, you'd be tempted to try and do a whole lot of other things too. Because of this false assumption that Jesus' return was so near that their current condition would be over in a short time. It's like a story I heard of a guy who went out uh, several years ago. This is a typical type of story where a person thinks that this is, you know, the end is so near that he could, he could go out and buy himself a Cadillac. Now I realize that today buying a Cadillac doesn't sound like such a big deal. And he would have managed to get the money to pay the down payment. But he believed the Lord is coming back so soon that he wouldn't even have to make that first payment. Unfortunately, that wasn't true. And so the car that he had, he couldn't afford to have. And so this is the kind of thing you can see happening when we get into unnecessary debt as well. But as we will see, this is a wrong and it's a sinful way to live. You and I, Christians, are called to occupy or to do business until the Lord's return. And that's written in Luke 19.13. Christians should seek to live according to God's standards and be the best workers, the best employers, and employees in the job market for all that are working. Why? Colossians 3, 22 and 24. We read it. We learned of it a couple months ago. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. That's employees and employers. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. So Paul, first he, he comes to them and he, he uh, um, starts to admonish and to teach them based on um, the, the word of the Lord, the name of the Lord, the name of Jesus Christ. And next he, he, he brings it to them based on the standard of the word of God, the Bible for us, the word of God, the standard. He said, not according to the tradition which he received from us. What is the tradition? Because sometimes we get, you know, we think, ah, oh, tradition, you know, they're no good. Well, it's all just traditional stuff. No, that's not what we're talking about. The tradition is Paul's teaching, the apostles' teaching, and his instruction all during the time of the early church. Not just Paul, but Peter and all the apostles. Because they were receiving instruction from the Lord. They were receiving instruction and they were giving. He says, what you received from us. And so he was teaching them. He taught them from the Old Testament scriptures and he also taught from the revelation of Jesus himself. And those that walked with Jesus would have, you know, the, the, the Spirit would give them the words, those apostles in the early days before the Bible was, uh, the New Testament was, was uh, put forth. And they would know, and this is important, they would know that work is actually a gift from God. And you say, well, I don't think work is a gift from God. I mean, I don't see it that way. Maybe you don't. But even before the fall of man, God placed Abraham, or excuse me, Adam, in the Garden of Eden. And what did he say to do? Tend and keep it in Genesis 2.15. You can read it yourself. Right away, he put Adam to work in the Garden of Eden, the garden that the Lord himself had planted. And so you and I are made in the image of God, are we not? And so we all represent him through meaningful labor. So work is not evil. Work is not a curse. Now, because of the fall, the Lord cursed Adam's work. You know, instead of tending a beautiful garden that didn't need uh, lots of weeds being pulled up, it didn't have briars or thorns or thistles, and the weather, the temperature was not getting too hot as God originally designed it. After the fall, um, all I can do is ask you, to, if, if you're like me, to point to your own garden that hasn't been prepared for spring yet. And you'll see there's a lot of work to be done because of the fall, because of the curse. But work was never a bad idea. Work 
It actually brings glory to God because it's represented through him. And so in verse 7, he now is going to give us the example of a disciplined work ethic. Instead of saying, get a job, you know, go get a job, right? Paul is willing to use his work ethic as an example. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. That word follow is where we get the, our English word mimic. It means to imitate. Remember, in the ancient world, students imitated their teachers as a part of their education. They looked so highly on their teachers, they would actually imitate them. And you probably see that in some cases today, if a teacher's setting a good example. And he said, for we were not disorderly. We were not idle when we were with you. And in verse 8 he says, Nor do we eat anyone's bread free of charge. The bread here means the food of any kind, the groceries. And we didn't do it free of charge. In fact, uh, it wasn't given or offered to these idle people as a gift. It was, it was given gratuitously and undeservedly. It was like, okay, here, you know. And they were taking advantage without paying their share. Like when you go to the restaurant, it's time to pay the bill. And like, oops, I forgot my wallet. Has anybody ever had that happen? I seem like I always forget my wallet when I go into it. No, I, don't, I don't do that. That's not very funny. Not the cost of, of food these days. The question is, is it wrong to receive hospitality? Absolutely not. It's good to give it. It's good to receive it. But we're talking about people who have decided that they were going to um, take advantage of others' good graces. And he says, he points out the fact that we worked with labor and toil night and day. Now, uh, labor, this is intense labor. Uh, there weren't a lot of uh, sit-down jobs back then. And so he was a tent maker. And he worked night and day. In other words, all hours is necessary. So he was bivocational. You guys know, if you read the book of Acts, uh, Paul was a tent maker. He had tent making skills. He records when, when he came to Corinth, he met Priscilla and Aquila, and they were also tent makers. So he, he kind of got connected with them. He stayed with them. We don't know how Paul acquired the skill as a tent maker because we also know that he was you know, raised uh, as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a very educated man. He, he had a very privileged life in a lot of ways. But if you're a history buff, uh, you're in case you're interested, that this province of Cilicia, which is in south-central Turkey of our uh, modern day, it was a region that was famous for raising goats and producing a goat's hair cloth that was used for tent making. In fact, the, the cloth was named Cilicium after the province of its origin. Yeah. Useless information, move on. Why did Paul choose to be bivocational? Why did Paul choose to be bivocational? Well, he was concerned about not being a burden for one. He said that we might not be a burden to any of you. To be a burden means, you know, to put a load upon somebody, to pile it on. You know, it's, it's one of those things. We feel the burden of life all the time. This was a young church. They may not have had the financial resources. But the main reason, the main reason Paul did this was to avoid the accusation of being like the other religious charlatans of the day. You know, somebody was always come. Some snake oil salesman was always coming trying to sell people something and promising something that couldn't be given. And they did it in religious ways, too. They dispensed their religion for personal gain. And he had a similar situation in Ephesus. When he spoke to the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, verses 33 and 34, he said to them, he says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for all my necessities and for those who were with me. Now after making that point clear and saying that, he also wanted to make another point. They had a God-given right to financial support, but voluntarily set it aside for the sake of setting an example. Verse 9. He says, not because we do not have authority... This authority, again, is, is a misuse if we use it in the, way, or the wrong way. He had the authority, uh, exosia, meaning he had the power of choice. 
He had the power of choice. And he had a biblical reason to receive compensation for his ministry among them. And you can see that all through uh, Luke 10, 7, 1 Timothy 5. Galatians 6, 6, Paul wrote this. He said, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. So Paul made it clear that it was not wrong for a pastor or a ministry worker to get paid for their work. But in this particular case, he would rather be an example. Paul wanted to make sure that the gospel came free of charge, in other words. He did not want money to stumble the work of winning the lost to Christ. We often remind ourselves that most of us are in a leadership role. Most of us here are in a leadership role of one form or another. And we need to avoid the hypocritical syndrome of do as I say, not as I do. It may sound funny when you're joking about it, but to the people that you lead and the people that you guide through life, especially if you're raising kids, they remember it and they will see it. One writer put it this way. He said, the greatest influence is that of, a godly, of godly living and sacrifice. A Christian leader may appeal to the authority of the word, but if he cannot point also to his own example of obedience, his people will not listen. This is the main difference between authority and stature, he writes. A leader earns stature as he obeys the word and serves his people in the will of God. Authority comes from position. Stature comes from practice and example. Stature earns the leader the right to exercise authority. In verse 10, we have now an explicit teaching on a disciplined work effort. Now keep in mind, he says, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat. I mean, pretty cut and dry. There's not a lot of, a lot of uh, can we fit some gray area in here? There's not a lot of that. Not at all. He says, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this. And that was a reminder. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Uh, David Guzik made a comment about neither shall he eat. He said, since God is able to provide through our needs in any manner imaginable, it means something that he has chosen for the most part to meet our needs through work. That's for the most part how we provide for ourselves. And this is part of God's character because he is a busy God and he's always at work, he says. And that kind of comes back to the Genesis example we talked about earlier. We need to answer the question, though. Now, now we're going to get into the little finer details. Will not work versus cannot work or unable to find work. Some of us have lived through times of very high unemployment, depending on where you were in this country. And there are times when people cannot find work. And that's not what he's talking about. Paul's commandment deals with those who choose to be idle and refuse to work. We are not dealing with those who are honestly unable to work or are unable to find it. Likewise, we are not dealing with those in our day who are poor or who have come upon hard times and need assistance. Many people have been helped in times of difficulty. We have food banks, thrift stores. We have a souls ministry that we participate in. Salvation Army, homeless shelters. The list goes on and on and on. And I'm not even talking about the government assistance that's available to people. But if a person is able to work and work is available, they, and now this is to the Christ follower. So be careful how you look at people. Did to work. And then he says, otherwise they should not eat off the good graces of others in the church. So that's Paul's first command to the church and how to deal. He's going to get a little further into it. But his second command is, comes directly to those who are unruly. Those who are part of the body of Christ. And he's basically saying, start working and provide for yourself. Start working and eat your own bread. Look at verses 11 through 12. He says, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. 
Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ, very serious, that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. And so he says, for we hear that there are some, apparently this is not the first time, and we explained the most likely situation that was going on with the false teaching of the end times that caused people to do this. But notice he says, not working at all. And, and what can happen, what makes it even worse, they are busybodies. A busybody. We talked about this a month ago or so. To bustle about uselessly. That's what a busybody is. To busy some, yourself about trifling, needless, and useless matters. I mean, you just got too much time on your hands, basically. Some who are not busy in their own business, but are over-busied in that of others, is a definition. And I remember growing up all through my uh, youth, my dad, I must have been, I must have had a struggle with this because my dad would say, John, nobody likes a busybody. Now I was the oldest of four boys, you can understand why. He gives here in verse 12 the, the remedy for idleness, the simple remedy. He says, now those who are such, we command and exhort you through our Lord Jesus Christ, that you work in quietness and eat your own bread. This is descriptive of the life of a normal, I'd say normal person. A normal person that goes to work every day and comes home, stays at home, does not officiously meddle in the affairs of others. You know, gossip can, is such a terrible thing. Oftentimes it happens because you just have too much time on your hands. And he says, work in quietness and eat their own bread. This is what you love to do. You love to come home. You love to sit down with your family. You love to enjoy a meal after a hard day's work. To work quietly and provide for themselves. In other words, you know, settle down from your busyness, your busybodiness. Get some rest. And then go earn a living, is what he's saying. Now, we know that there is an opposite extreme from idleness and not willing to work, and that's working too much. If I asked any of the wives in here, or spouses, to raise their hands, if they know what I'm talking about, I don't know what would happen, so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but it's important to note that the Bible does not condone workaholism. We want to be balanced, right? We do not work merely to amass worldly wealth. Yeah, I mean, I tried that. Some of you tried that. You know, you climb the ladder of success in life, get more toys, and I'm still cleaning up the mess. We work to bring glory to God. We also do not work ourselves into the ground or to the extent that our health is damaged and our families suffer. So you want to live a quiet life. You want to live a balanced life as well. Now, verses 13 through 15, he's going to give the commands. He's kind of summarize what we've said today. And he's going to say, you know what? Here's, thing, here's something you need to be stay, stay faithful in. That is doing good. But he gives very specific instructions about unrestricted fellowship with unruly people. He says, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. I would ask you to listen very, very carefully what we're about to go through here, because uh, you know I know how it can be when we start to look at others and to observe others and see things that we don't much care for. And we can go to extremes. So again, he says, but as for you, brethren, or brothers and sisters, we're talking to the church. He says, do not grow weary in doing good. We've heard that many times. We say that often. We use that as a way to get motivated to do what's right and wrong. But what he's saying is, do not lose courage. To grow weary means not just physically tired, but it's to lose courage in doing good, in doing the right thing. And in this case... It takes courage to have to do what he's saying. Do not affirm a disobedient through unrestricted fellowship. He says, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him. 
This is uh, an injunction to take a cautionary note of somebody who refuses obedience to the apostle's word. And we can see this in a lot of areas of our, our refusal. If, we, if we're living a, uh, a life that uh, kind of comes contrary, always going contrary to the Bible, always going against God's word. Yes, we all struggle with sin. We're not sniffing out sin here. But if you see a person that is in a fellowship, but yet their life is always coming against and contrary to Scripture, and in this case refuses obedience to work, he says, do not keep company with him. And this is where the church gets this thing, you know, shunning, right? And you see it in some of your extreme uh, cults, Christian cults, actually. Do not keep company with him. I mean, you can see how easy it would be to take that out of context or to overdo it. And so Paul is trying to be very careful. To keep company means to mix up with, to mingle, or to hang out with as though nothing was wrong. Just totally ignoring this bad situation that's causing harm in the body of Christ. And he says that you are to do this so that he may be ashamed When a person's conscience is affected, my conscience, your conscience, when our conscience bears witness against us, that's a powerful motivator. That's a powerful change. That, that may have been the beginning when you came to Christ. Your conscience was, was agitated because you knew you weren't living a life that you should have. You knew right from wrong because God placed it in your heart. And so what he's trying to do, Paul is saying, look, sort of keep this person at arm's length. Make note, but do it in such a way that would cause them to say, hey, how come nobody ever wants to be around me? How come nobody ever wants to hang out with me? They never invite me over, whatever it is. Now, in the Greco-Roman culture, an honor-shame culture, it was, it was a terrible thing. I mean, that brought, you know, condemnation throughout the entire community. So, you know, that, this was a powerful tool for motivating a person to realign their behavior with the community's values. We live in a, uh, in a world right now, this moral relativism, you understand, where there's no right or wrong anymore. And so everything's relative. Your truth is yours and mine is mine and I can do whatever I want. But the Bible always pushes us back to the fact that there is right and wrong and there are right things to do. Now Paul is not encouraging some form of self-seeking control or manipulation. That's the danger with what he's telling us. He is simply showing the need to bring correction to an unruly brother or sister who chooses to come against Scripture with a disobedient attitude and lifestyle. By not keeping company with him is the hope that the, the power of his own conscience will bring conviction and repentance. Fun stuff, huh? It's, fun, it's in the Bible. It's what we're commanded to do. And we can only do it by the power of the Holy Spirit and by his grace. So what does it look like? Is it you shun the person, you never look at them, you never speak to them? No. No, this is not what we're talking about. There may be times when you do that with an unbeliever, but with a believer where the Lord is trying to bring godly discipline to them, uh, it's, it's important to understand. I, I like what uh, Warren Wiersbe wrote. He said, there is a difference between acquaintanceship, friendship, and fellowship. For fellowship means to have in common... For obedient saints to treat disobedient Christians with the same friendship they show to other dedicated saints is to give approval to their sins. Now, you think, okay, that's, that's, I don't want to do that. You know, well, oh, this is making me uncomfortable. And thankfully, this is not something we deal with on a regular basis. Amen. Because we have a right teaching about the end times and we know that we're to occupy till he comes, right? And so he says in verse 15, yet do not, you can underline that, do not count him as an enemy. 
but admonish him as a brother. In other words, don't go overboard with a self-righteous attitude. To see him as an enemy, this is a hostile or hating and opposing. It's a, it's a non-believer who persecutes Christians for their witness for Christ. That's who unbelievers are, who come against us. But admonish him as a brother. Now to admonish is to warn or exhort. It means, to admonish means to warn someone about the disastrous consequences of his or her actions. And Paul regards this as a responsibility of the community. It's not just the pastor or the elders or the deacons, ministry leaders. It's everybody's responsibility. Likewise, Paul provides a model of church discipline that aims toward restoration of the person. The church discipline, and we're talking about, is always the goal is to restore a person to fellowship. They, not, they may not be restored to their previous leadership position, but they are definitely to be restored to fellowship, not condemnation. And so in order to warn someone, you have to have dialogue with them. When someone like this says to you, again, I said earlier, why does everyone always seem to avoid me? This may be your opportunity to lovingly confront their behavior. Maybe you would say in this case, if, if this was the classic case, well, when all you ever do is ask for help or handouts from those who work to provide for your needs of their own family while you remain idle, when you could actually work, it's no wonder people stay away from you. Now, as I said, there are times when the Bible instructs us to, do, to avoid or even shun those who cause division. But these are not true believers. Romans 16, 17, and 18, Paul said this, Now I urge you, brethren, again, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learn and avoid them. Why? For those are such that do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Yeah, you, you take note of those people, you push them aside. Let me say one more thing. Uh, one thing that we've all come in contact with are uh, what we used to call panhandlers. Uh, people who stand on the streets or they come to receive homeless people. They ask people for a uh, handout, panhandlers, money. From time to time, we've been approached here uh, by those who simply, literally, there are people who literally go from church to church to church asking for money. They seek handouts and they tell, this, this one guy came to our church probably, I would say, four or five times at least over the course of six weeks or so. And he had the same exact story for us. He said, oh, um, I need some money. I'm out of gas. My mom has cancer and I need money to get gas to go see her. Now he told us the same exact story. And, you know, since you and I, we rarely have the ability to confirm their story. We usually try to show compassion and we offer help. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll you know, reach into our pocket if we have cash and give it. Until they come back again and again. And finally, uh, you know, I had to tell that gentleman and so did somebody else that, uh, no, you cannot come. He, he came, uh, I gave him a handout again. He goes, well, can I go into the congregation and ask them for money too? I said, no, you cannot. And he never came back again. He was, you know, stormed off like we were all of a sudden the most wicked people on earth. So here's my advice. And I know it's difficult these days as we move towards an increasingly more cashless society, right? Keep a little cash in your pocket. You never know. You can't judge a person's need. Let the Lord speak to you on that. Amen? Amen. As we conclude, let's remember that the reason for this form of church discipline is to maintain order among us. Because if we fail to do that, we lose the peace of our community. Not our comfortable Christian little bubble. You know, we're not talking about all you ever do is stay inside the four walls of the church. Uh, I hope that's not the case. But the thing about it is, is we want to maintain the peace among us. 
And we can't do that. If we fail to do that, we lose the peace of our community. And when we lose the peace of God, we lose the message of the gospel and the good news. You don't want to invite people to your church. You're too busy fighting one another. I've been in those situations. James Grant, he said this. When we have to face difficult decisions as a church that involve those we love, the path to restoration can be quite difficult. But Paul reminds us that these concluding words, that we cannot lose sight of the goal. Our redemption is not simply a ticket to eternal bliss. Our redemption is for the whole world because our redemption is supposed to give the world a picture of the way that things are supposed to be. You know, it should be just a slice of heaven here among us. And, I, and I'm, you know, I'm not saying this because there's something going on. I have to, I have to always want to be careful with this. Because uh, as you preach God's truth, sometimes our minds get going, well, I wonder if he's talking about somebody. I wonder if he's talking about me. No, I'm not. <laughs> Let the Lord speak to your heart. Not me. Not me. It ain't me. Amen? Amen. All right. Uh, we're going to close. The, this, this end of the letter has a built-in benediction. So if a worship team could come up, we're going to close with a song and prepare. if you want, Kent. Thank you. Before we close with our benediction, I, I want to remind uh, those of you who are staying for lunch, uh, we'd ask for your help as usual of uh, uh, you know, tearing down and, and setting up. And I'll certainly invite everybody to stay. I know it's a busy day. Uh, people have a lot of plans perhaps for this evening and family time and such, but uh, uh, again, we have an opportunity to celebrate somebody's birthday today. And so uh, if you care to stick around, we're going to celebrate Tim Bailey's 29th birthday. Right, Tim? I wish. I know you were. <laughs> In any event, uh, just wanted to mention that. <laughs> Here we see in the uh, last part, I'm just going to read this benediction. You know, maybe just bow your heads for this because maybe that will be an easier way to receive it. Paul ends the letter. He says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always and in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the peace that we have in you. We thank you, Lord, that it is you himself who brings that peace to our hearts and minds. We give you honor and glory for that. We thank you that you can give us peace in every way that's necessary, whatever we're dealing with today, whatever our struggle might be. Lord, I pray that you just simply go before us and all the families that are represented here. Lord, I thank you for your grace and your love and mercy. Thank you, Lord, that you shower it upon us at times, especially many times in our lives when we know we don't deserve it, Lord. But we can always come back to you and receive your love and grace as you speak to our hearts. I want to pray for that person here who may be struggling with the loss of a loved one. We know that there are some. And I pray you bring peace and comfort to the family. We know that uh, uh, Brother Stephen, his family, has suffered loss. And we, Lord, continue to join in prayer for that precious family and ask for their travel mercies as they head down to Alabama. We pray for comfort and peace through this time. Lord, I pray today for those who are struggling with depression, anxiety from life's walls that seem to be closing in on them. 
Lord, I pray that you will break down those walls, that you will bring peace, that you will bring a vision, a fresh vision in their hearts and minds. We pray for our sister Shirley out in California who has sees no hope or future for her current situation. We pray, Lord God, that you would minister to her in her time of struggle right now. I pray for those here, perhaps, that may be struggling with addiction, secret sins that they're ashamed of, Lord, that they would like to once again surrender to you and surrender to your power and your strength and your love and your grace. Give them the courage not to grow weary in seeking forgiveness for you, Lord, from you. I pray for those here today who do not know you, Lord. Maybe they have questions in their heart and mind as to what this Christianity thing is all about. I pray that they would sense your love and your goodness, that their hearts would be convicted of the need for them to repent and to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I pray for those today who have grown cold in their faith. Maybe they've been walking this walk a long time and they just don't sense God's work in their lives. They don't sense His presence, Lord. They don't sense You speaking to their heart. And I pray You would soften their hearts. And in all these things, Lord, we surrender unto you and we give to you because we know that you're the giver of good things. We know that you hear our prayers and we know that you love us. And so we simply come before you once again together as a family to sing one more song on one more Sunday as we wait for you and your grace and your mercy. Go before us now, we pray. In Jesus' name and all God's people say. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.